execution really matters. Like, can you get it to market? Can you find uh, that product market fit? And then once you get product market fit, can you scale it? You know, someone like Sheryl Sandberg went to Facebook and she was able to really scale this. Uh, I'm sorry, went to Google. She was really able to scale that Google ad sales team. Right. And that's what really gave them that, in, that initial boost. And, and now 97% of Google's revenues from that ad team. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Campfire Capitalism. I'm your host, Desmond Dixon, and today we have a superstar guest in the room at the campfire that's going to share with us some amazing things regarding product discovery, product market fit. So if you ever was is interested in a startup or you know building a business using technology, this is the podcast for you. We're going to go into all the details, talk about all the great stuff regarding product management, product market fit, and uh, have a little blast. So let me just kind of give you some some details of the guest today before we jump in. So Jim is a coach for product management leaders in teams and early stage startups, tech companies, and Fortune 100 corporations. Jim co-founded Power Reviews, which grew to 1,200 plus clients and sold for $168 million dollars. He uh, product managed and architect one of the internet's first e-commerce systems at fogdog.com that went IPO at a $450 million valuation. Those a lot of zeros, both for those companies. So woo woo. Um, these days he coaches companies to find product market fit and accelerate growth in health uh, or sorry, in digital health, financial services, e-commerce, internal platforms, machine learning, computer vision, energy infrastructure, and more. He graduated from Stanford University with a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science and lectures in product management at UC Berkeley. Jim, man, welcome to the campfire. Hey, thanks for having me, Desmond. Yo, speaking of, speaking of campfires, have you been to anywhere cool lately camping? So I know the last time we talked offline, like you're, you're big into the outdoor life and, and camping and all that. So have you been anywhere interesting recently? Yeah, we went to Salt Point a little while ago. It's up here in the California coast, and they have, honest to goodness, tide pools with all kinds of creatures in them. And we timed it just right, and it was amazing to camp and then walk from the campground to the coast and walk on the rocks at low tide and just peek into the little, like, glass you know, not glass, but like that water bowl, that natural water bowl of these tide pools and see crabs and sea anemones and urchins and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Oh man, I could only imagine. That's so cool, man. So oh, I got to ask you this. So let's just dive in a little bit. So before we, you know, uh, make sure that we were in, in alignment with the audience and they're aware of the jargon that we're going to use. Can you just explain like very lightly, like what is product market fit and what is product management? And then we can kind of go into the details and why it's important. Sure. Yeah, I'll start with the product management part. Um, in the beginning, we had engineers building concepts, and sometimes these concepts worked, and sometimes they didn't. They they hit the ground running, and people really adopted them. Those are the companies we know and love and hear about. And the ones we don't hear about are where um, the product didn't fit the market, and there wasn't anybody in charge of making sure that happened. And so... Product managers really are the connective tissue between that business and the engineering efforts so that we can address a customer need. We can do it in the business's interest so that employees have 
you know, paychecks and there's a reason for the company to exist. Um, and it's just combination, this intertwining of those business and technology needs. It's really product management. And then in terms of product market fit, it just has to do with, is your product being adopted to the point where you feel that there's enough of a market to support your company? And it's a little bit like if you have to ask if you have product market fit, you definitely don't have it, <laughs> right? Because you, because you can feel the pull in the market, right? And you do a lot of work with salespeople. And so you know the difference between push and pull. When you've got to push hard on a concept, you may not have product market fit yet. Now, people are resistant to new things and they're resist resistant to change. So initial, um, you know, blocking of your idea by people may not be the end result, right? You may have to push through some of these barriers. I mean, the, the car versus the horse and buggy. I'm, I'm sure a lot of these new technologies were thought of as strange and weird and no one would ever adopt them. And um, so product market fit is really about finding that connection in the market with enough people that your, your business can survive and you can start to kind of feel confident that you would actually hire more salespeople, that you could actually have this um, reason to be in the market. If you hire a lot of salespeople and you don't have product market fit, it'll be really hard to sell the product. Um, it'll be especially hard to renew the product because even if you've sold it, people may not use it. And so product market fit is a, it's like a, it's like a phase change in a startup where, or in a division of a big company with a new product where you feel confident scaling and you should never scale until you feel like you've got it. Man, I think you hit it on the head because I, uh, man, cause churn is, especially when you're growing is just the worst thing in the world, both financially for the business and then morality wise, especially as a sales team, because you have to replace that person and like 15, 20%, 30% more month over month. Cause you're, it's like double, it's like triple work. And then on top of that, usually when people churn, what's the first person they call or reach out to that they're churning? That salesperson, right? Their buddies. <laughs> yes. And their buddies, yeah. So like you're not even getting that word of mouth thing. So I think this is fascinating. Um, the whole product, the product, uh, market fit thing. So let me ask you this. So like what are some of the most common, um, let's say, what's, what's, what's some of the most common mistakes that you've seen in terms of like for product management that, that you see like that happens, like a, a pattern that you see because you, you've been in this game for a while. Yeah. People get really internally focused. Their bosses really demand the attention of product managers and engineers, the, the other internal stakeholders. Um, they try to dominate the conversation as if they know everything. And I just don't think the hit rate of your average executive is that high because most product people are out there, you know, most startups are failing, right? So most ideas are not really working in the market. And so the idea that my idea is going to work is just probabilistically not correct. And so uh, what I want folks to do is really get out and talk to customers. Um, I call them relevant strangers um, because they have to be your target customer, but you shouldn't know them. Like they shouldn't be your friends or your family. Um, friends of friends could work. Um, you know, relevant acquaintances. But, um, and someone said this funny thing today. It's, it's about uh, when you find the relevant strangers and interview them, get that outside influence, you can start ignoring the relevant executives. Um, because they are really important in your life. So, but I do think that a lot of teams are inward focused too much. So it's not to say you shift all the way to the other side. 
you still have a lot of professional intuition and company history and knowledge about the market that you need to take advantage of inside your company. So that's, that's a big thing. Um, I would say number two item is my teams aren't focused on metrics. They are building software, but they're not monitoring the software after it launches to see if they've had success or failure. And then they're not looking at that number of the, that metric to try to improve it. And so it's about building the software instead of getting that adoption of the software. Because sometimes people are just going through their roadmap and they're told internally to just success is you hitting these deadlines. But deadlines don't make money. Salespeople make money by selling your software <laughs> that's relevant to the market, right? And that's where I, as a young software engineer, thought if I build it, they'll come use it. And as a mature software engineer and mature product person, I know it's way more complicated and then I'm better off getting it right than I am just launching something. Mm. So I'd say the inward focus and the analytics are two big ones that I see out there. Man, I call it a uh, dark room. It's so funny how there's so much crossover between IPC product management and sales. Cause I've like, I've had thousands of sales calls with entrepreneurs, business owners and the, big difference that I usually see is the ones who are crushing it are action takers and get feedback from the market and just regroup as they, even if they have something that's working, they're just optimizing it based upon what the market is telling them. And then you have some individuals that are stuck in a dark room and they're always tinkering based upon what they think the market wants and never puts it in front of people. So I love how you said like, you know, these strangers, right? Like, you know, these strangers that you don't know, right? Like just getting your idea, getting your, your products in front of people and letting the market literally tell you what they want to buy. I think that's like the biggest hack from today. Like if someone was listening to this, like, Hey, like let the market build your products. Um, and that's where the fun part, let's say the adventure of it, right? It's like the, the market, right? Because you have more certainty. Um, yeah, this is interesting. Well, it, it, it also makes you find the market side of part of market fit. So I had an entrepreneur who built a site for $200,000. Nobody visited it because it was his dream. And he would, and somebody took the money and said, yeah, I'll build that for you. I'll build your dream. But he didn't do the hard work to go find out who would actually visit it. And so he tried to do marketing after he did product. And so what we do in product management is try to understand and develop the market as you go. And like you said, you, those folks can actually um, help you build a product, either consciously helping you or just through their feedback. All right, let's drill down on this. So like, what's a little bit about your philosophy? Because obviously you're doing something right. If you've been a part of like, you know, all these massive successes. So like, just talk to us a little bit about your recipe or right, or your belief system or philosophy around like product management. And uh, let's, let's unpack it from there. Yeah. I mean, I think for, for product management, my, my recipe for success is, um, I mean, it's paying attention. It's, it's obsessing over, is it working? Uh, does anybody want it? And I think that there's a vulnerability that comes with acknowledging that people may not want this thing. And so I can teach you all the techniques in the world, but you have to embrace the unknown. You have to embrace the uh, vulnerability um, that you've got to pivot, that you've got to adjust as you go, like those folks you were talking about, and to stay away from the kind of the dark room where you're sort of tinkering and it's all about your vision and not about how the market's going to see it. Um, so I think when I see folks, I try to imbue that optimism, that, that obsession, 
Um, the other thing is there's a little bit of paranoia. When we started power reviews, our competitors started within one month of us. And we were in a bitter fight for seven years. And so when you have a good idea, that could be a product of the time and the technology and the insights. And it may not be just your insight, right? The jet engine was built in two different continents at the same time. And so I think there's a, there's a paranoia that can power you to get something into market that can help you really understand. And, you know, sometimes first movers win and sometimes they don't. Nobody talks about MapQuest. They were the first great map out there. You know, people don't talk about all the early mail clients that talk about Gmail. So, you know, Google search was also second to all the other companies that maybe it was 10th on the market. Um, so I think, but these folks all obsessed about the speed of the search, the quality of the search. Um, they knew they could tell when something was good versus bad. They had an opinion. And so I don't want people just to be operating a machinery like software engineering. I want them to be obsessed and I want them to be paranoid healthily. Okay. Um, and that's going to drive them to really seek a, a win. And, and I think that's what most people want. And in startups, it's a little bit more visceral because you're a smaller company and you have to survive. In big companies, it's less visceral. Um, and so sometimes you have to kind of generate like, well, what is my, my competition today? What is my, um, my duty to my customer? Yeah, so this is interesting because I know as an entrepreneur, especially when I first started, I was always thinking about what if someone steals my idea? What if someone takes my business model? What if they do this? But I feel like if someone, if, if the, if people are trying to copy you or mimic you, then that means you're probably onto something. That's evidence that there's something there. So I'm just curious because I, I remember, I remember we had a conversation offline a while ago about, um, you know, you started a com you you started this com you guys started this company and then you found out about a competitor. So just tell us a little quickly about that story and how that like and what lessons you learned during that journey. Yeah, two of the founders were at some conference in the summer after we started, and they were sitting next to somehow the founder of the other company. And the other company, the founder of the other company, just started talking about uh, his company. And our founders were like, "What?" I mean. And they kept it inside. So they did not acknowledge that they were a competitor and that they were also in the same market. Um, they were just shocked. Um, and they came back from that conference and we were all shocked and surprised and blown away. And um, this competitor had been in a similar market. They'd been in the analytics market and they'd learned about the concept of product reviews through watching the collective analytics of their clientele. And so they had a bit of head start in the why behind product reviews. And they also had really good connections to clients. We were just four engineers. We were not that well connected to clients. We were connected in some places, but it was, um, it was a big wake up call and, and just a tremendous surprise. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy, right? To like, you, cause usually if you come up with a really good idea, the universe probably sent that idea to a lot more other people. And it just comes down to like executing to a certain degree. Right. Yeah. That's what I hear from my venture capitalist friends. It's about execution. Sure. If you can get a patent for something, but there are very few of those. It's very hard to get a patent. That's totally blocking competitors. Um, I've, I've, I have five patents and they've all unsuccessfully blocked competitors. They're very hard to enforce. And, um, it's, it's something where uh, execution really matters. Like, can you get it to market? Can you find uh, that 
product market fit. And then once you get product market fit, can you scale it? You know, someone like Sheryl Sandberg went to Facebook and she was able to really scale this. Uh, I'm sorry, went to Google. She was really able to scale that Google ad sales team. Right. And that's what really gave them that, in, that initial boost. And, and now 97% of Google's revenues from that ad team. Interesting. Yeah. So, so execution. Yeah. So let's talk about this because I think this is pretty relevant and I I'm personally very interested in this space as an entrepreneur, maybe uh, wetting my beak. Cause I think that it's almost like the new dot com and it's not crypto by the way. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, <laughs> so this whole chat GPT, right? You're, 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 you're up in the, you're up in Northern California. Like this is probably talk of the town, right? You can't go to a restaurant without people talking about AI. Right. And so I'm super curious about like you being a product guy, um, like, like, do you see layers of software being built upon this engine, right? Like specialized software, right? Because I think that based upon what I know, it's like you have to be really good at prompting it in order to maximize the, um, the use. And let's be honest, 90% of consumers probably aren't that good in terms of, I hate to say critical thinking, but they probably, it'll take them a ton of time and effort to figure it out. So there's probably going to be products on top of it that, or specialized like travel itineraries, assist, uh, you know, certain assistants. So I'm just curious to hear your take on like where you think the ball is moving from a product perspective. And is, is this a market that entrepreneurs really should maybe like take a look at if they have some, like they should probably pursue. I'm just curious to hear your, your take on the subject in general. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'll, I'll take one of the points, which is, will people, well, you know, can it be used as a hard to use? You know, maybe people need to be smarter about how they use it. I think about Google, like very few of us go to Google and just type in, you know, shoes, right? We might have done that a while ago, but we're going to type in, you know, uh, soccer shoes, Adidas, you know, black, size nine. You know, we're going to go for this and see if it can find us a page. And so I think over over time, we've learned to to play Google like a little mini piano and I think Google has learned through the scale something like, you know, spelling, right? So as we correct our mistakes, Google learns what the right word is. You know, they didn't have to make a spelling dictionary. Um, we made it for them. And so the genius of ChatGPT is the scale of the usage they're getting because people are telling them their use cases right now. In fact, Amazon sort of forbade their engineers from uploading code because everything you tell ChatGPT is going to be used to make it smarter. Um, it's smarter from the AI point of view, but also smarter in the product point of view. Like, what are those use cases? Which ones are really working? You know, so I think the basic textbooks about product management could be written by it. I just, you know, what are great product discovery techniques? It just popped out five of them. And it's certainly regurgitating the internet. And I'm assuming that they're doing enough, you know, it's if it's copyrighted material, they're only using pieces of it and things like that. But um, so I think the usage of it, um, they're learning now. People are also, are also learning, and so you're going to meet in the middle. I firmly believe that. Even though I want to go in there, I want, and I'm going to punk the chat GPT, and I want to make it look bad, and I want to believe that we're not going to have certain parts of society replaced by this stuff, but you know, I'm, I also took a self-driving car ride uh, over the holidays. Like um, These things are coming. They'll be more assistive than replacing. It's going to be hard to replace us, I think. Um, but... Again, where we can use that assistive help, you know, like cars. I mean, I have an older car. I want it to do cruise control. And when there's a car in front of me, just automatically slow down. I don't want to think. I want to stay in the lane. I don't want to have to worry about staying in the lane. 
almost every car can do this now. And we're taking this stuff for granted. We don't need the car to necessarily drive us from point A to point B entirely right now. That might be nice. But um, so I see this chat GPT is coming in a, as an assistive force in our life that's completely unknown. But people are just, it, for some reason, there's just not enough going on in the world that people have really gone into this and just, um, and it's just good enough that people want to go back to it. Right, and so they've done something. It's and it's not perfect, right? They went to market, and there's a lot of stuff wrong. Um, but that's what I would say in product management is you've got to get to market like that, so that you get people to use it, and then they tell you where to go next in, by their actions. I mean, we're not telling GPT, Chat GPT, anything. We're we're using our we're voting with our feet. Um, and in terms of building on top of it, um, this is just going to be like the way VCs play the lottery with startups. Like you're going to invest in a hundred and one or two ideas will come out. So we're going to come up with hundreds of ideas, but most will be bad and some will be terrific. And I, and I no, I'm not Nostradamus. I'm not going to tell you what no. I had my Berkeley students um, try to write uh, cover letters with it. I don't know. I'm, I particularly hate cover letters because they're hard to write. They take a lot of time and you never know if anybody reads them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and a lot of these students are foreign, foreign born and they're incredibly smart and they'd be amazing employees but they're not necessarily going to write you a great cover letter. And so it's a misrepresentation of their potential. Mm. Yeah. And so why not upload your resume? Why not, why not make a great cover letter writer that really does represent your potential, right? And so is it about your writing or is it about them understanding your potential? And so if it's about the writing, you're a purist and that's not going to be the way the future goes. But if you give me a cover letter and I hire you, Desmond, and you're like the cover letter, should I care who wrote it? Oof, that's deep. Society seems to care. Yeah. But why? Yeah. Maybe because it's, once again, that change word. For right now, right? Until, they, you know, they start to get results in the benefits from this technology. I think that, um, you know, being international and, like, traveling around, I see this technology helping more of the developing world and uh, other countries more than exponentially than the U.S. I, I think the U.S. will like it's going to be great. It's going to help us as a, as a great like nice to have uh, something optimized. But in terms of skilled labor, I see this like literally raising, helping raise the value of the people within some of these other countries who don't have access to certain skills and, and um, resources, right? So, like, um, you know, I've been reading a lot about, reading a lot of uh, George, uh, I think it's Zihan, I think it's the last, I can never spell his last name. And he talks a lot about um, how, you know, countries, you know, every country has a certain development or, 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 or level, intellectual level, based upon, like, the products they produce for the world, for globalization. And how the United States and East, East Asia and, and West Europe we have lots of high skill labor, right? So, which means we, you know, we have the, the high skill people, the developers, the, the, the industrialists, things like that, right? That create the machines and create the machines. And, you know, I could see in five years that this, these AIs are essentially like they're like the East, Southeast Asia, India, like all these places using these tools to catch up with mm -hmm. us, right? In terms of, Having that brain power, that you know, that knowledge part, because most people obviously flock to Western Europe, flock to the United States. Some, I don't know about East Asia, but I know that they, you know, they come here for the opportunity, right, to use their their high high skilled labor. So, 
Um, I'm pretty interested. I think the the world looks bright for us us capitalists out there, us uh, capital allocators. Um, so yeah, so talk to us a little bit about like what you're doing now. Just curious because you you're obviously you've crushed it. You have a, a very a very fascinating philosophy around this stuff. So just talk to us a little bit about like what you're doing now and like what brings you fulfillment, and then we'll end off with some fun travel stuff and and, and wrap up. Sure. Yeah, I work with product management organizations or product organizations um, to really improve the skills, techniques, and collaboration um, of their product teams and their managers and their leaders. You know, when you seek input from customers, it actually has a change to the entire organization because you cannot necessarily, as a leader, start dictating down top-down features. And so... When I work with teams, I also want to work with leaders to really let them know that you need to create the environment for innovation and that your teams will actually create that innovation if you provide them with a good problem to solve and you give them the resources to dive into the context, which is customers and data and subject matter experts, um, so that they can start to generate those insights because they're the ones closest to the customer. And that's the part where um, when I work with an organization, I want them to slowly transform into data-driven, customer-driven, um, and slowly move away from kind of top-down features and defining scope and really just trying to hit deadlines. Because if they can tie the, um, the success of the product to the success of the company, um, that's where you're going to start to have a lot of leverage in your organization as opposed to one or two people trying to do a lot of guesswork. And so um, I coach product teams of uh, product managers, uh, tech leaders and designers, and we add in maybe data scientists and other folks. Um, I also coach uh, product leaders. Sometimes I coach engineering leaders, but it's mostly um, those cross-functional teams and those product management leaders to really transform their organization to be discovery-oriented, data-oriented, customer-oriented. And I do it with um, startups, uh, what we call like scale-ups, so people are in that growth mode, they've already got the product market fit. And then these, and then a variety of corporations who are really trying to bring innovation back, um, and maybe tried innovation labs and tried a variety of techniques. And really, it has to do with having great people. And so I coach their people. And um, you know, one of my mentors says that ordinary people can become extraordinary if they're given the right resources and environment. That's Marty Kagan, and I firmly believe that. When I see my teams, it's not necessarily about replacing your personnel. It's about giving them the space and giving them the co- coaching and training to to level up. Um, so I do that work uh, with teams and, and leaders, and it's um, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Let's go. Scale up startups and businesses looking to right, create the spark again, right, in terms of new products. Um, all right, I have to ask you this. So what are going to be – so what – So what? I got to ask you this first. So – what has been your three favorite places that you visited around the world? Because I love, I travel around the world. And I love asking our guests this. So like, what's the, your three favorite places that you've, that you've uh, visited? Uh, I would say Bangkok where you are right now was just amazing for me and my wife. We traveled uh, for eight months after we got married, just on backpacks, about $63 a day on average. We kept track of every penny. And we went through Latin America, so Central and South America, um, New Zealand and Thailand. And Thailand, um, Bangkok, we spent weeks there. Um, And it was the first um, non-Western country I'd ever been to. And to me, it was eye-opening. 
because Central and South America are very similar to America. Not in every way, but... Um, so I loved the difference. And then, of course, the street food was better than restaurant food. I loved um, the art and the architecture, the crafts. We still have fabric in our house from that trip. Um, and the, the warmth of the people um, was incredible. Um, yeah, I felt um, very comfortable there. And yeah, so that's Bangkok. Um, I have to say, Easter Island is one of my favorite places. I was a college student in Chile. And Easter Island is uh, effectively like the Hawaii to Chile. Like Hawaii is to America's Easter Island is to Chile. It's sort of a territory of Chile. And uh, I visited there twice. I took my wife back on this trip. Um, and it's truly breathtaking. It, you know, just seeing the statues there. Um, I've camped around the island, um, hiked around the island, and it's uh, mesmerizing. Um, and then I would say... Going on a safari, I was lucky enough a couple of years ago to go take the family on a safari in Tanzania. Um, and Tanzania and Kenya are connected with the Serengeti, and it was um, amazing to see thousands of wildebeest sort of running here, running there, kicking up dust, thousands of zebras, hundreds of elephants, dozens of lions. Just the scale of it um, was, was amazing. Um, giraffes that eat spiky plants. I mean, what is that? <laughs> it's, you know, animals are, are amazing and surprising. They have like 900 species of birds and seeing the incredible diversity of birds was amazing. Um, seeing the hippos that are super gross because they're in these big pools where everything's kind of mixed in. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, those three places really stick out for me and, and I've been lucky enough to travel a lot. Wow. I just added one thing to my list because of that Easter Island. Even they didn't even think about that. Never like that's that's what I love about this pod, right? You learn new things. When you connect around the South Pacific, man, you got to go. You have to hop. It's too long. So when you go New Zealand, Tahiti, Easter Island, Santiago, that's your hop. Wow, that's the that's the transition over the chasm, right? Going back. Yeah. yeah. So when you come back west, go go south and then come over. <laughs> yeah. All right, last one, last one. All right, what are three places that you you're looking to go next that you're that you have your eye on? That's like top of your list right now. Yeah, it's places where they may not be the same pristine level they are now, like in twenty or thirty years. So, and we love nature and water, and um, I would say a certain amount of authenticity. So it's hard to go to places that are really touristy for us. Um, and so I think, um, the whole area about like Indonesia, Borneo, Malaysia, that whole section there just seems amazing and beautiful. And, um, we have a friend who lives in Kuala Lumpur who would give us a home base. And so we're, we're, we're thinking about there. Um, I, I always, I want to go to like, say like China or Bhutan, like somewhere in that area. Um, I mean, they're very different countries, but those two places, um, you know, just walking the Great Wall would be, probably be pretty incredible and amazing. Um, and let's see. Yeah, maybe I'll just say Bhutan because I read about it a long time ago and it was just too, spe too expensive to go as a backpacker because it required <laughs> you to spend $100 a day back then. Um, and you had to have a minimum stay. And so it's always seemed kind of mysterious and kind of interesting with the temples that are on top of mountains and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, Bhutan, China, and, and that whole Indonesia, Borneo, you know, 
Malaysia area. Yeah, it's beautiful. Okay, sweet, man. Well, yo, I enjoyed you as a guest. This was so much fun, tons of value. I definitely learned a lot. Hopefully our, our, our audience learned a lot. So um, how can people find you? What's the best way to get in contact? Is it going to your website, LinkedIn? What's the best way? Yeah, certainly um, productdiscoverygroup.com is my website. Um, easy to find me there. And then you can find me on LinkedIn, Jim Morris. But there are a lot of us out there. So <laughs> um, you, can, you can type in some of my words from my bio, and that'll usually find me uh, on the internet. There's even a movie about a guy named Jim Morris who was a baseball pitcher. Um, so very unfortunate that's a g- generic name, but productdiscoverygroup.com works great. Awesome. And the links will be in the show notes. So, guys. You made it to the end of the episode. We're so grateful that you gave us your most precious resource on the planet, which is your time. And we will see you at the next campfire. Bye-bye. Thank you, Desmond. Desmond.